Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход в том подъезде, как в поместье проживает Черный кот. Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему как щит. Все коты поют и Hello, everybody. Talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Mark Steinberg about his book, St. Petersburg, Fin de Siècle. Public discourse in the final decade of Imperial Russia was dominated by images of darkness and dread. Discussions of these times and times of trouble captured the sense that Russians were living on the edge of abyss from which there was no exit. It was this sense of imminent doom, or simply the stasis of despair, argues Mark Steinberg in his book St. Petersburg, Fin de Siècle, that defined the social and cultural experience of the denizens of Russia's window to the West. And the apocalyptic visions not so much foreshadowed 1917 as they unmasked modernity's promise of progress as an illusion. Much of St. Petersburg, Fin de Siècle is about experience, the everyday and the emotional, the sensual and the physical. After all, the prosaic experience of modernity was not of a city ruled by the geometry of order, but assaulted by the incongruity of chaos. As Steinberg shows, the clanking of streetcars, bustle of the crowd, the shadows of the alley, and the unfamiliarity of the stranger make modernity an experience wrought with anxiety, trepidation, and even trauma. St. Petersburg may be Russia's city of light, with its wide thoroughfares, colorful architecture, and white nights, but these illuminations cast dark shadows. For more, here's my interview with Mark Steinberg. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you doing? Fine. Uh, Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thanks for joining me to talk about your book, Petersburg Fendisiekel. A pleasure. Uh, Just to start, why don't you tell a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Well, about myself, I'm obviously a historian of Russia, and I've uh, been doing this for, I don't know, since 1987, I guess, when I got my PhD, I've been teaching and writing. And I've sort of written a large number of different things, although all in one way or another trying to understand cultural experience, social experience, human experience in Russia from oh, somewhere in the middle of the 19th century to the middle almost, not quite the middle of the 20th century. So previous things have dealt with labor, but especially notions of the moral values that connect workers and how with, with which workers deal with employers and issues of um, especially uh, quite a bit about the revolution of 1917, again, from a largely um, below understanding of people's experience and especially people's aspirations. Um, and recently I've done quite a bit of work on issues of religion and emotions. Um, and sort of around a lot of those issues kept, oh, and a spe- I forget, my favorite book, actually, of recent years until this one, uh, of working-class poetry before and after the revolution. And in a lot of those works, I kept coming across the question 
of the meaning of the city. Uh, and the meaning of the city, not just as such, but the city as a thing that is always read as symbolically, in some symbolic way. Um, and that's ancient, you know, the meaning of Rome, the meaning of Jerusalem, the meaning of Babylon, all become more than just places, they become ideas. And so I began thinking a lot about, is there a way to get at the thinking about the city, in particular as a way to get at the way Russians think about modernity? which is, as everybody told me when I started proposing this book, oh my God, don't do modernity. You'll never get out of that deep black hole. <laughs> Define. Uh, and, I, and I think that's actually true. I'm still in that deep black hole. Work is done. Uh, and I think the idea was I was looking for, uh, it was easy to pick St. Petersburg. It's the most symbolic city in Russia. It's the one that, like other great cities, like Berlin and London and Paris and New York, is just rich in myths and stories and legends and becomes the most symbolic city in many ways for the Russian Empire. So that became an easy choice. And then I just threw myself into a method that I still like, which is to try to read those really hard and time-consuming everyday sources, which became, as time went on, especially newspapers. Reading the daily papers to just immerse myself in uh, the city, which led eventually to uh, journals and magazines. Um, but eventually I ended up saying to more or less drop the archives that I'd started working on because I didn't want a archival, traditionally archival, institutionally generated history of the city. I wanted what people, how people were narrating the city to themselves as they were living it. And then trying to step back and re-narrate that city as, an, as ultimately an interpretation about that big question, the meaning of modernity. So that's yeah, I really like how you pay close attention to words in the press and in other journals and, and the images that those words denote. Um, I think that's a really powerful way. It's a, it's a very, your book is a very Im book of imagery. Um, you get a sense that you can kind of, you use the word topography at one point, and I think you get a sense that you can see uh, as you're reading the, the, the environment you're describing. Yeah, no. And as you say, I images and the relationship between a word as a text, and it's very, sometimes we forget, but it's pretty obvious that, that words always, even when they're not metaphors, which they often are, even when they're just plain nouns, they always evoke something visual. And visual evokes landscapes and all sorts of the, not just intellectual, but for me it's very important, the emotional connections people have with words and meanings and spaces. Well, speaking about words and, and particularly metaphors, I, was, I, I find the structure of the book quite interesting because you, you basically structure it around seven metaphors, city, streets, masks, death, decadence, happiness, and melancholy. Why did you use metaphors as a structure and why these particular ones? That's interesting. I mean, at first of all, I would say they're not only metaphors because, of course, metaphors are never only metaphors. <laughs> um, and those particular, well, they were true... They were chosen for a lot of different reasons. The, because they're not just metaphors, I was very interested in the fact that, especially the early ones, the issue of the city and uh, streets and masks, and above all, one might say death, these are very tangible things. These are about as material as you can get. And one of the issues, one of the critiques of people who do culture and cultural history and cultural studies is one forgets about the materialities. And I think not really. Most people don't. Sometimes they're just not explicit enough about it. But these are just so rooted in material realities. And so I was very interested in each case in thinking about 
the physical spaces, especially of, say, the street. Perfect example. A street is nothing to be more tangible. It's full of dirt and noise and crowds, uh, and people live there and people work there, and one has experiences there, which is a whole category that, that I'm still trying to sort out, but I keep exploring. It's very tangible, and yet we still today say the street as a meaningful concept, the street. The street and its role in revolution, Main Street, Wall Street. I mean, this, the notion of the street becomes symbolic, becomes metaphoric right away. Uh, the same for death. Death is probably the most tangible experience a human being can have. Uh, and it is one of the most frightening to observe and to experience and to anticipate. But also the, the cultural mythologies built around death as a metaphor and the uses of death uh, are very persistent in human civilization, and Russia, of course, is part of that. So I was really interested in choosing those partly because, I mean, with happiness and melancholy, that's a little different, um, and even decadence in some ways. There's already a conceptualization of certain behaviors. But I really wanted to continually look at the material, and, uh, which is what metaphors do in, term, in relationship to the philosophical. And in some ways, that's why I chose them. I chose those particular ones because and this is why I'm a historian, not a political scientist or even a philosopher, is that's what the sources told me. I'm still attached to that old-fashioned but beautiful principle that we don't come to the past with an agenda. We come with questions. And one of my questions is, what are you talking about? Right. And that's why I read newspapers and magazines so extensively. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours sitting in, you know, dusty, smelly, Russian, you know, libraries reading these disintegrating things when I was lucky to get the original because uh, conditions aren't so good for some of these old things published then. And that's what I began to notice. And my original proposal, I always love when I do a project, compare what did I say I was going to do and what did I end up doing? And usually the thing that I get most excited about, um, in fact, in almost all my books, there's usually a chapter. It's the one I never, ever anticipated. When I did a book on worker poetry, I had no idea I was going to find all this religious language, but I did. Was masks the, the chapter in this book? Uh, it was masks and it was melancholy, ah, okay. actually, both, both of those. Um, masks, yeah. I had no idea the metaphor of the mask was going to be absolutely ubiquitous. And then, of course, I began doing a little theoretical and comparative reading and realized, oh, every literary scholar in the world loves images of masquerade. Mm -hmm. But the melancholy, which ultimately is the last chapter of the book, because I think it is ultimately the, it defines everything that precedes it in every chapter in some ways, is pointing toward it. Um, melancholy was, of course, it's, I imposed the word, they almost never use the Russian word melancholy, but I found the vocabulary of what to me ultimately worked under the notion of melancholy, depending on how you define it, the vocabulary of disenchantment, the vocabulary of uh, catastrophe, the, the, the vocabulary of ultimately loss of meanings and certainties, which is one of the core notions of melancholy, this unresolvable sense of loss and confusion and disorientation and depression, I found just everywhere. And in fact, I would say even more broadly, the thing that I didn't expect, and it's what led to a, a book that came out about the same, a little bit later, a book on uh, emotions. It was an edited collection from a conference I organized. I didn't know I was going to be talking about emotions at all. Though there were hints of it. Somebody told me, 
oh, of course it's in your book on workers' poetry. And I, yeah, it sort of is, but I didn't notice it. Well, this is a very dark book. And, and interestingly, uh, so was your previous book, Proletarian Imagination. There, there's, a, there's a darkness that, uh, that your work has, has kind of taken hold of. <laughs> um, what role does darkness play in this period in Russian history? And what does it say about the Russian experience with modernity? Yeah, well, there's, there's a huge question. Um, I don't ask easy <laughs> ones. <laughs> no, no, what role does darkness play? Uh, I hate to see your students in a seminar. Like, oh my God, they don't know what to say. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. It, it's true. One of the things about darkness, and it's interesting you chose that, um, Melancholy, of course, is literally embodies the notion of blackness. So there is a tangible sense of color. But we tend to think of that word, and most of the words Russians use too, in much more abstract terms. I mean, the most common word that is that comes out in Russia, which is almost untranslatable, is this Russian word tuska, which is sometimes translated as melancholy. But it doesn't include a reference to color or blackness. So, in a certain sense, I'm reading something into it, but. The reason I chose it is precisely because there is the word black, the word dark comes up in all sorts of interesting uh, ways. There's all these metaphors of, you know, we're living in a dark corridor and it's getting darker and darker. And of course, the optimists see a light at the end of the tunnel, as it were, but many see this sort of increasing darkness. But needless to say, in Russian history, darkness and blackness have other meanings, um, they have, above all, the meaning of we live in a backward country. This is a favorite trope that, of course, Western scholars use. But, in fact, Russians, as you know, use it all the time. Russian darkness, the dark common people, especially the peasantry. Uh, but it applied to the urban lower classes uh, as well. And so there is this sense of darkness having to do with backwardness. But what I found was that's not the main concern, um, especially for even the urban lower classes. It wasn't that they were dark and ignorant in that sense. It was the whole experience of modernity is potentially about suffering, about uncertainty, about entering something that theoretically offers hope, but in fact tends to suggest um, you don't know where you are. I mean, one of the things about black darkness is it in a, and this metaphor of, of we're, we're in a dark tunnel and there's no exit is quite common in the press and seemed very odd and abstract, but I began to understand what they had in mind the more I read. There is this sense of you don't, you don't know where to turn. You don't even know how to get out. Even if there is an exit, you can't see it. So that leads to this bi the biggest abstraction in some ways in the book, which turned out not to be just modernity, that's the sort of impossible question that I, that I posed. And of course, there is no one modernity. There's all sorts of modernities and also how they're understood. But it actually ended up increasingly becoming about time and especially the, the idea of progress. The more I thought about it, the more I, the more I began to think that if, if there is a dark story here, it's not the story of the darkness of Russia because we're backward. It's not the story of the dark Russian people. Uh, it's certainly not, although most people think that's what I'm ultimately proving, the story of, oh, you know how those Russians are always so good. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the biggest sort of myth about Russia that I'm constantly having to do battle with because people think that's what I've reinforced. And I figure there are many people who read my book or barely read my book or get a sense of what it's about and, get a, and 
remember, yeah, yeah, prove those Russians are so dark. And I'm not trying to say that. I think what they're offering is a dark diagnosis of the myth of progress. And the myth of progress is one of the oldest ideas of if there is a grand story about history that human beings have used since, I don't know, the 18th century, the 17th century, uh, it is that things are going to continually get better. The word that time brings improvement, that progress, and I think that became increasingly an important word here, progress is going to happen. There's a lot of problems. So, so in that sense, in Russia, the backwardness, no problem, because it's going to be overcome with progress. And questioning the myth of time means progress, progress means life gets better, that's the darkest part of the story. And I, for all sorts of reasons, they began to question not whether Russia was on the path, but whether the path itself was actually a progressive in terms of experience. And it's interesting, actually, I just thought of this while you were talking, that the darkness comes out of St. Petersburg, which is often seen as a city of light. The bright colors, the broad spaces, the fact that it's a window to the West, bringing in the light of enlightenment from the West. And it's, it's interesting that it's contrasted with that bright image of St. Petersburg. Yeah, I think that's true. Even though, of course, St. Petersburg, as anybody knows who spent any time there in the winter, is a very dark city mm-hmm. when it com- because it's the city of white nights, famously. It's also the city of black days. Uh, but that isn't part of the myth of the city, as you say. I mean, even though it's a reality uh, in the winter, the myth of the city is about the white nights uh, and about, as you say, the big, broad prospects with lots of light and the, the, the beautiful buildings and their bright colors. Exactly. And, of course, in terms of the big question, the big myth of progress, St. Petersburg represents a window, not just a window, right, that lets light in, but lets light in from the West, which is the symbol of modernity. It's the symbol of progress. If there's any city that represents the future, which is the, the modern progressive which, of course, meant capitalist. It, of course, meant industrial. It, of course, meant urban. That's the vision of modernity that was being embraced. Uh, Petersburg was supposed to be the place to find it. Yeah, Moscow, it wouldn't work because Moscow's so rooted in you know, the village and the peasants and the Russian Orthodox tradition. So you'd always look, Petersburg symbolized the promise of modern, industrial, capitalist, urban progress. And as you say, it's, it became attached to symbols of light and brightness and open space. And yet it turns out the narrative of, to go back to the phrase you mentioned, which I don't use that often, but I, I like it, uh, as you say, topography. It turns out that the, one might say the human topography, the experiential topography of the city, the moral topography, and one might say the philosophical topography when you think about how is the world going, how does time move, turns out to be not about brightness, but about uh, darkness, at, at least the darkness of we're not sure where things are going. Well, let's let's actually explore this idea of topography because um, after doing a survey of the shifting aesthetic representation of St. Petersburg and this kind of move to darkness in the late 19th century, you turn to the city's innards, that is the streets itself. And and, and here newspapers are really key because they, they provide a, such a vivid picture of those streets. Uh, what kind of moral topography did newspapers compose of the streets? Well, this is always complicated because newspapers, especially the newspapers I focused on, although I found it was not much, not less true for the more serious newspapers, but especially the the urban uh, boulevard press, the mass circulation press, 
uh, Penny Press. They wanted to sell as many copies as possible, so they have a tendency to tell, as papers still do of that sort, uh, to tell dramatic stories, everyday street life. And the dramatic stories one finds on the street are usually, in most big cities, the stories of crime and robbery and death and suicide and the cafes that are sort of decadent and wild. So uh, oddly, what, what ends up happening is you, is you get the newspaper narrating a story that is probably more dramatic than everyday life was. And the nature of that drama tends to focus on things that are troubling and disturbing. So one might argue, and people have, and you know, I'm sort of criticizing my own work here, uh, it's probably one criticism that I take pretty seriously, is that the newspaper is a biased source because it wants to see the excitement and the drama uh, and the darkness. Um, but ultimately, I think that's because, as many a newspaper person said, because they were attacked for it, they, were, they even said, you know, you are making life look worse than it is. It looks darker than reality. You're even contributing it to it. You're making people depressed. They read the paper and go kill themselves. Uh, you're part of the problem, not just reporting the problem. And they were very sensitive to that. And many of the best columnists who I got to know, I feel personally by name, even though they're relatively anonymous, apart from name, I know next to nothing about most of their biographies, even though they were like daily columnists, uh, they continued to argue, you know, we are not creating the problem. We are the mirror, as, as Frieden put it. We're the mirror of life. And you don't like looking at the mirror because you want to live with your visions and your ideals and your myth about what the city should be like. But this is what it's really like. And in that sense, it's motivated, I think, much more than I expected, not just by its sensationalism so it has an effect, though I think that's a potential critique, uh, but Newspaper people, people like Olga Grinda, um, one of my favorites, and this guy named Skitaliets, the Wanderer, who just used that as his name, and, and many others, were ultimately no less concerned than much more elite writers for, for fancier newspapers and magazines with the question you asked, which is to say the moral topography of the street. And for them, the street, just like we often use that phrase now, the street by definition was a morally dangerous place. It was dangerous for especially the poor, poor children who spent too much time on the street, uh, individuals who walked, especially the streets at night. Um, there, was, there were all the risks. There were sexual risks. There were criminal risks. So the sense that the street tended to nurture just side by side with all those beautiful, bright buildings and lovely architecture and grand squares, which Petersburg is so famous for, uh, the street tended to be a morally troubling Rain. And the street, by extension, included things like the cafes that were right off the street, or, the, or things like street cars, which is one of the more interesting things I wanted to spend more time with uh, than, I, than I did. Trumping moral topography. Yeah, and, and it does, it, it provides a, a, or it speaks to the lie of the order of the city. You know, the idea that the city is placed on a grid, it, the buildings are very symmetrical, um, they seem to have a lot of the same height, they have the same architecture uh, style in a lot of cases, but the streets kind of act, because of their, their unruliness, seem to undermine even that other image of St. Petersburg as a city of order. And, and in a lot of ways, the order of the Tsar state, the Tsar, or Tsar society, based on an order under the Tsar. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Uh, because, again, part of the myth of progress is not the myth that life will become better because it'll be more disorderly, 
which one might argue, you know, that's more and more freedom means more and more disorder. But it is, it is, a, it is a, a vision that society will work better. It'll work more efficiently. Uh, everything will be more beautiful. And there is an aesthetics of order. Order isn't just order because in a, in a sort of police sense. It's also very aesthetic. And the city, as you say, tries to materially embody that. But also the ideal for those who believed in progress was a society in which everybody worked together, pulled together, cooperated. There weren't these sort of deviant elements uh, that it wasn't chaotic, that it was orderly, and most importantly, uh, sort of orderly in terms of you knew what to expect. You knew where the future lay. And that disorder was also a really troubling one, is you didn't know what might happen. So, right, the street, for all its symbolic value, is this beautiful orderly, as you say, the city's built on a grid, or at least on various geometric patterns, did not, at the street level, uh, was a very disorderly place. And disorder tended to be read as morally troubling, except by these tiny radical minorities, usually artists and poets and a few others, and some revolutionaries, but not even most of those, who thought disorder is a wonderful thing. Chaos is a wonderful thing. It's creative and it's imaginative. But frankly, I found only people who had read philosophers could convince themselves <laughs> disorder was a good thing. <laughs> Um, but and the streets are, are also, I mean, in that chaos, uh, something else in the sense that they they really arrested the senses and emotions. You have sights, smells, noise. I mean, you mentioned trams, this constant, you know, clanking of tram cars on the street, and of course fear. But also you have joy, excitement, fun. Um, how did these senses and emotions color uh, Saint Petersburg? Yeah, I mean. I don't want to be trite about it, but the, the simplest way to, to argue that has to do with uh, what is classic of every great city, and that is the sort of clash of opposites uh, that is true in Paris and London and Petersburg and New York, you know, any really great city. Um, Pittsburgh and Urbana are probably not examples of that. Uh, big cities really always combine the, um, the, the mixture of the excitement, it's thrilling to be out on the noise and the chaos and the danger uh, of a big city street. Uh, but it also, it's because of the noise and the danger and the chaos that it is thrilling. And so, you know, an example of that is there's, a, as you know, there's this wonder, wonderful book. I read a lot of comparative urban history as I was working on this uh, by uh, um, Judith Walkowitz, uh, City of Dreadful Delight. And the word is not hers. The word, I forget who, who, it's an English writer who came up with the phrase dreadful delight uh, earlier. But in a way that characterizes life in a big city on the streets, dread and delight simultaneously. And they're not too, just two contradictory things that you can't sort out. They help define one another. The thrill and the dangers are all connected. But in a way, you know, in a way that that's all, that, that's so orderly. Uh, it, it's, it's like what historians do. Everything, everything fits. Uh, but experientially, you know, I can easily make that argument about the city of dreadful delight and Petersburg, and they all work that way. Experientially, it was very disturbing. I mean, it was not pleasant for most people. And it made them not just feel a sense of tension between the excitement, the cafes and the noise and the people you can see and the places you can go and the, the, the everyday theater of what happens out on the street. 
they don't just say that, oh, it's all part of the, the rich contradictoriness of living in modernity. I could say that. And if people did, mostly they say, I don't understand. This is, this is cognitive and emotional uh, and moral chaos. And I, don't, I can't live this way. Hence, they often use the word uh, nervousness. Uh, it's used as a, diagno a diagnosis by actually psychiatrists at the time uh, of what people were experiencing. And Russians were not making this up. This was uh, an argument made in Western Europe and the United States as well. Is people living in this modern chaos, however much we could philosophically make it all hold together as, as this unity and contradiction, it, was, it produced actual psychological uh, neuroses, nervousness. Yeah, I'm reminded of the fact that the idea of traumatic neurosis comes out of the experience of being on the train. Um, these first writings on this nervousness. And, and another thing too, especially if you see it from the perspective of say a peasant migrant who comes to St. Petersburg and how that, experience, that initial experience is just completely jarring uh, for someone who lives in a very you know, rural life where things are kind of, they're more natural noises rather than the kind of mechanical noises and, of the city. I lost part of your voice oh. there. Oh, I was saying that, you know, from a peasant's perspective, it's really jarring in this yeah. sense. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because, I, you know, I've, you and I have both read all these memoirs written in Soviet times by Soviets who come to recall when they first got to Moscow or Petersburg or any great Odessa or other big cities. And especially the narrations written in Soviet times, um, Semyon Karnachikov being the most widely read one in everybody's classroom uh, and widely quoted, I accepted that at face value when I first read it. Okay, so the peasant comes to the city, oh my God, it's just overwhelming, it's shocking, I can't cope. And then gradually, I've learned to become a city person. I can cope with this. I'm now more mature. I have more self-pride. Hence, of course, I can become more questioning and critical and ultimately a revolutionary. And there's this trajectory often seen in the literature, uh, in memoirs, of the chaos, the trouble, the, 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 the sort of distraught quality of entry to the city, which becomes a source of mastery and pride that one overcometh. What I found striking, and it made me begin to question how much that was simply a story they were telling because it had an obvious political logic about progress. You can get over it. Life will get better. You can, em you can embrace modernity. You'll become a better person for it, a stronger and more modern person, less of a peasant. Uh, you'll become a worker. You'll become a proletarian. I began to think about this as a, as a constructed narrative with a very political purpose because what I was impressed by is how often very urban people, um, workers, uh, educated middle-class writers, um, were, unless they were philosophically disposed to make an argument about progress and modernity in the city as a great thing, continued to say they never got over that feeling. In fact, the sense of mastery, the sense of I love it, I can throw myself into the, you know, the, the chaos and of, of being modern, and this is a, this is a you know an old urban trope. I mean, Baudelaire is the most famous French, the French poet Baudelaire who talked about you know how the modern person it takes heroism, the hero of modern life can throw themselves in, and be at home in the chaos and flux of the street. In fact, I find all these urbanites continue to say no. Actually, it never goes away, and it and this sense of overcoming and mastery is blinding oneself to the reality of 
how much of how much troubling, and that's another co- interesting word, uh, the notion of trouble in Russian, how much troubling there is about the state of modern life. And and also too, and the the city is is a place of concealment, of shadows, of um, imposture, and and you do this in in your discussion of masks. But I found one thing that you wrote that's interesting. You say that masks are a symbol of modernity's epistemological crisis. Uh, what do you mean by this, in terms of public life in Saint Petersburg? Yeah, but well, here is you know I think it uh, goes back to your question about darkness. Because one of the, and again, it's one of those things I really didn't expect to find in newspapers. You know, I thought philosophers might talk about it, even more educated, uh, you know, journalists. But in the newspaper, there really was very clearly, um, without them using the word epistemological crisis, which is something often applied to the experience of modernity at both a cognitive and emotional level, uh, is that if, you know, knowledge is very important. Again, it goes back to the peasants. I can master the city. I can understand all, all the chaos. If the idea of progress is that you can understand the world, that knowledge grows constantly, um, then when you begin to confront the fact, the more you're in the city, that there's nothing, there's so many things you can't understand. You can't understand. You look at somebody's face. That's my favorite story, the one that I saw so often in the paper. You look at somebody's face, you look at their haircut, you look at the clothes they're wearing, you look at the way they're walking, and you don't know. Are they a murderer? Are they a criminal? Are they an aristocrat? Are they a worker for that matter? That class, but especially danger, cannot be seen anymore. So that the sense of, of mastery, intellectual mastery of knowledge, um, suddenly becomes derailed and disoriented and confused. Uh, and hence, I use the more philosophical notion of an epistemological crisis, a sense that we no longer know what are the groundings that give us knowledge of the world we live in. So it becomes a very tangible thing. A well-dressed person uh, mugs you on the street. Um, a nice woman who looks very well-dressed walks into a shop uh, and turns out she's a shoplifter. She's a robber. Uh, a person may pull a knife and you can't actually predict it. And, of course, the presence of con artists tend to easily mask by looking urban. And so it's these very tangible, concrete stories of which they're all very dramatic and sometimes even funny, um, including they're, they're often followed by stories of we urbanites wouldn't be fooled by these things, and yet even the police can be fooled uh, by these things. The sense that ultimately in the modern flux of identities in a city, you don't know even something so basic. Very concrete stories become philosophical questions about the very nature of uh, knowledge. Or one might say, um, because I think epistemology isn't just about theories of knowledge, uh, it's also about vision. And I, and I find knowledge, knowing and seeing are connected so often. You can't look at something and know exactly what it is you're seeing. So this, and then you get all these other metaphors. Groundlessness uh, comes up. And to go back to your early question, very often you get this phrase, we are wandering in the darkness. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know where modernity is taking us. We don't know who's who, uh, the sort of anonymity of the city. All of these things come together to, to create a sense of a crisis of knowledge, an epistemological crisis that is both about knowing and seeing and very uh, distressing to people. And then ultimately read in terms of uh, sort of larger questions about 
modernity and progress, of course. Yeah, and I would also add to that, you know, the fact that the idea of community is completely shaken up in the sense that you, in a city like St. Petersburg, you have people coming in, people going out, you don't know where they're from, they're different ethnicities. It shakes up the idea of a more, you know, idyllic rural community where you know everyone in your village or you have this sense of the, you know, kind of one of the myths of Russian rural life, this kind of commune of, of kind of collective or mutual responsibility. And here in the city, that's kind of completely shattered. Right, right. I mean, the related issue, which is, again, very typical of modern life, is uh, it's hard to recognize the difference between truth and lies, which is a great philosophical question, but it's also a very practical question. And you don't have that in the village. I mean, well, I mean, you can get a peasant who is deceitful, uh, but usually there's ways to figure that out. In the city... You don't, the city is so full of everyday lies, not just how people behave and, and forms of deceit by con artists, uh, but the, at, a, at a higher level of abstraction, um, advertisements which pervade the city. They promise everything, but they're most lies. Uh, and learning to recognize them as lies is actually very troubling. It's like, then what do you believe? And then there's the biggest lie of all, one might argue, at least I think that's what many Russians were perceiving, and partly is one of the core arguments of the book, uh, the lie of the promise of progress. It's like, don't worry, you know, things will get better. It depends on what better is. Some would argue it'll happen because of greater capitalism and liberalness, liberality, greater freedom. Others would argue, well, that won't, that's, that's a lie, but the, the progress will come if you have socialism and, and collectivism, for example. Uh, but the lie of progress is one that people began to question very deeply. And so, and part of the same, uh, the difference between rural life where you know what, you know what's what, at least you think you do. And, and another thing, too, in, in this sense of Petersburg being a city of death, which you also concentrate on, and, and it's filled with accidents, violent, violent crime, suicide. I mean, just these crazy, you know, small little stories probably buried in the newspaper and a couple of paragraphs of these incidents. It seemed that the city cannibalized itself. That that the you know its residents were just eating each other alive and and what is the significance of death in uh, fin de siècle Saint Petersburg? Yeah, um, I mean obviously it, it's by the way one of the reasons I titled the book as I did um, because it, it makes it parallel other period other places because actually technically the book is after 1900 so in a technical sense it's not the end of the century it's the end of the age and in that larger sense of fantasiac. Uh, and it emphasizes this core word, two core words. One is about time, and time and the issue of progress be, is very important here. Where are we going? But it also has the key word of fa, of end. And death, of course, is the ultimate human experience of an ending. Unless one has, you know, is convinced that about an afterlife, it's over. Uh, and the sense, or at least it, your temporal, even if you do believe in the afterlife, your, your worldly life is about to end. Uh, and so the sense of death as ending is the most dramatic, I mean, it has all sorts of very personal everyday meanings, uh, but it goes, it also includes the sense of, is civilization heading to an end? Is modernity leading not to better and better, but to some sort of collapse and crisis, uh, which of course was very encouraging for people who had religious views that, you know, finally the end of the world will come and we'll get redemption and Christ and a whole new, a happier world. So there's this big fear 
that keeps coming up of death as, as an end. But then I think no less, and it's really ultimately, I, I, I like to intertwine the big philosophical questions that I think they were thinking about and also the everyday. Death is simply one more form of not just the danger, but the uncertainties of city life. There are so many ways you could die unexpectedly in the city. And it's true, you could in the country too. There were illnesses, you could be run over by a, uh, a horse, uh, you can fall in a river. Uh, there are a million ways peasants died, and especially sickness and, and illness. Urbanites continually insisted it's much worse in the city. The chance of, of unexpected death, the transmission of disease because you're so close to people. And there, were, there was a cholera epidemic and other epidemics as well. The, the, the higher risk of getting serious illnesses like tuberculosis and dying of it w was higher in the city. And they kept noticing that. And most importantly uh, was uh, the two key issues of violence and suicide. Urbanites were more likely to kill themselves, which is the oddest danger. It's a danger at your own hand, but the city was always to blame. And then violence at the hand of others, which was again associated as much more likely in urban life for all sorts of reasons. So it was both highly urban, the higher risk of, let's say, unnatural death from disease, but especially violence uh, and suicide, uh, but it easily was read to into it, the Russians' ability, everyday Russians, newspaper people's ability to translate these things into questions about where are we going, what is the future, into these big questions was always part of the story. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this this kind of obsession with death or pointing out death, it it's, has a temporal aspect in the sense that city life is sped up, therefore your life is sped up. So the end time is only around the corner because you live this, this fast-paced life. Um, and also along with this is the issues of decadence and degeneration that you address, that um, another, another two concepts that that newspapers and other literati um, obsessed with. How are these expressed in St. Petersburg life? Well, of course, it, it's uh, the connection to time is immediately there because while one meaning of decadence is simply immorality it, and one might say moral disorder, ultimately the term uh, decadence, our term decadence, and also the terms like it that Russians were using, which many often were closer to degeneration, all of them were really understood as temporally. Uh, a sense of things seem to be declining, not going forward. That progress isn't bringing better moral health, it's bringing moral, not just disorder, but a sort of, we are more primitive, we're more savage. Uh, and that was applied to a number of things in particular. It was, it was applied, of course, to um, violence on the street, uh, in particular the sort of very weird case uh, of hooliganism, which... Um, um, Joan Newberger brilliantly wrote about uh, years ago, and I have a slightly different take on it, but ultimately I'm indebted to her seeing how this sense of violent excess uh, was understood as something very threatening. What I find that's somewhat different is they ultimately felt it to be a sign of, uh, of degeneration of society, not of those individuals. It's not that they were a dangerous other. They were a sign of we as a society are not going forward, we're going backwards. Hence, you have these violent, young, working-class men who will stab you for 14 kopecks and feel that was just the appropriate response, um, would engage in these absurd, uh, violent fights among each other that had no purpose. Uh, and the sense of violence without meaning, 
became a sense of this is society becoming savage. And in fact, they literally used uh, comparisons to Apaches, to Africans, to sort of tropes of, uh, of savagery that Russians imagined would existed in other parts so there, of the world. So there's almost a racial uh, trope of degeneration. Yes, and it isn't just about those people are others because they're sort of like Apaches or, or animals, which was the other comparison, but our society is nurturing uh, this. Uh, and so there's this sense of our society has all these signs of moving backward in time. Uh, so that, that was one of them. And the other, of course, was uh, sort of sexual excess. Both are about excess, beyond the bounds of reason, normality, control, order. And so they quite often, I think, and it's why I put the, both hooligans and um, sex in the same chapter, both were understood as signs of a sort of degeneration, a backward moving quality of morality uh, in the modern city. And oddly enough, both were connected to the thing that we often associate with one of those good things uh, about the signs of modern progress is higher understanding of yourself as an individual. And there's a lot of anxiety, and it's not just by conservatives, although it's certainly coming from conservatives uh, and the church, that hooliganism, that sexual decadence, that in fact a lot of the behaviors that are so troubling can be explained by greater sense of self or simply individualism, sense of uh, it's for me, who cares about others? I want to live for the moment. Uh, I want to seize the moment. Uh, this sort of language became attributed to both hooligans and um, and all sorts of forms of sexual excess. So again, a sense, a weird sense in which only caring about yourself uh, and seeing no bounds to your own pleasure uh, or your own violence uh, was seen as harmful and backward. Hence, you're, you brought up the issue of community. It's the opposite of community. And in another way, the argument here seems to be, or the, the feeling even, that individualism, individuality, caring about yourself, feeling you know, great, enormous individual possibility was actually not progress at all, at least if you think in social terms. And many were. I have to say the echoes of uh, the 1920s are quite striking to me <laughs> of all of this. Uh, there's a, there's a certain sense of continuity um, of these feelings because the 1920s, though in a kind of Bolshevik key, are still the similar issues come out in the in the press especially. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and it you know one one could argue. I mean, I don't try to make arguments about about the end of the 1920s, but in a certain sense, given that now one had a government that really did believe in modernity and believed that ba all forms of backwardness could be overcome, and that a happy future was possible, uh, and that modernity and urbanization and industrialization, just not capitalism, were good things, the continuance of all these signs of disorder and decadence and masquerade and deceit and that were so troubling to newspapers in, in the pre-revolutionary period, it seemed all the more necessary to eradicate it. Uh, and, and there was a, you know, you don't eradicate it if you don't have faith that it is eradicatable. Uh, and so, you know, one could argue, I'm not sure I am ready to argue it, that there is a sort of continuous, not only of a problem, 
that continues in the twenty, but in the twenties. But even a logic, if you believe in modernity, which I think not enough people in power actually did before the revolution, but the Bolsheviks did. If you believe in it, then be bold. You can really, you can transform the world. And so it explains the revolution that, the real revolution, one might argue, the bigger one, the the deeper one that began at the end of the twenties. That took faith. You had to have faith in progress. You had to have faith that happiness was possible if you just were bold enough. And very few people thought so, I think, at the end of the old regime. Yeah, it's, it's well, it's certainly clear from your book um, that there's this. And that, that leads me to the last two chapters, which are yeah. happiness and melancholy, right? Yeah. They serve as this kind of emotional binary pair to kind of end yeah. the book. Um, how do these... Uh, represent the emotional even the psychological state because i i took this as a diagnosis of a psychological diagnosis of late tsarist russia how does this play out in these two kind of psychological concepts well you know again it's at least i try as hard as i can to make sure it's mostly their diagnosis not mine and i did find an, a constant interplay between this notion of the, the easy notion, in some ways, and in fact, it's interesting because at times, for a long time, until the final version of the book, actually, uh, melancholy was the second to last chapter and happiness was the final. Until, and, and there's all sorts of complex considerations, but one is ultimately, I didn't want to set up a false teleology that, that melancholy was the natural conclusion and happiness was the more daring and bold one because ultimately you could transcend your dark doubts and realize that it is possible to be free, to be redeemed. But I decided to reverse them. Um, because in a, but in a way, melancholy is the natural conclusion. It's natural to conclude that the world is defined, as one writer said, by the color black, um, that disenchantment, is so pervasive. The more you know about the modern city, the more you know about the myth of progress, the less you're likely to believe it. Uh, and that word, word disenchantment, loss of faith came up a lot. That um, basically one's living in a time of, we talked about it before, epistemological crisis. You don't know anything. But ultimately it looked like modernity was really a time of repetition and loss and confusion and not progress. It wasn't leading to greater uh, happiness. That seemed to be the conclusion everybody was offering and mo the most common. Then there were those rare people who did indeed offer alternatives. Sometimes they were the newspaper people themselves who said, you know, we just have to get over it. If we stop, it's sort of like, you know, positive thinking in the 20th century. If we just stop being depressed, and sometimes they said, you know, we Russians have a hard time not being depressed, but that's just an argument. We need to stop being depressed, we just need to feel willful or determined, or we need to be more like those Americans who never doubt about anything, uh, which was often uh, said. Um, so there's this, you know, there's that argument coming from the press. The religious elite, and many Russians were very religious, people who were deeply convinced about um, Christian faith were quite sure that redemption could come out of darkness, that there is, as it were, that dialectic that eventually, in the midst of catastrophe, would, would come uh, the new uh, kingdom of, ha of happiness brought by, well, by Christ, in this case. And then there are the revolutionaries, who, of course, have their own version of that dialectic, just a secularized version, that, yes, the worse it gets, but out of that, 
all of those troubles will come the transformation, transfiguration of the world into the possibility of a collective socialist uh, world. That, that in a way those were the rare voices. And I thought by putting the chapter last, it would, it would sort of imply the teleology that in fact I wanted to get away from, which is, to re- and not just because I don't believe in those things, I neither not really making an argument about my own belief in the possibility of happiness or progress, but because I thought that was, would be unfair, it would be imposing a classic historian's teleology of, but yes, there were people who could see beyond this, into what really was the view on the very eve of 1917, which was much more melancholy, much more focused on the disenchantment, on the loss, on the loss uh, of faith. With the one exception that in that happiness chapter is also those, and I think it actually pointed in both directions, that the hell with suffering, uh, with getting depressed, as one person said, down with boredom and depression, long live fun and laughter. This notion of who knows where the world's going, probably not in a good place. Let's enjoy ourselves. And so I thought, I'd like someday to do more with the issues of laughter uh, in Russian culture and, and politics, and some people have written about it, because it, it immediately became debated. Well, what sort of laughter? Is it laughter of uh, real happiness, or is it the laughter of a sort of dark laughter that grows when you know there's no point in becoming a revolutionary or becoming a a true believer in the church, it's about um, you might as well make the time pass because the end, as it were, is, is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's laughing at fate in this sense. Uh, you know, you're, you're, the end is coming, so you might as well enjoy, get your kicks in now. Right, and if the world is a world of shadows and illusions and even progress, it's just a shadow and illusion. It's a magic, you know, it's a magic lantern show. It's a phantasmagoria presented to make you think things are getting better. You might as well enjoy the show, watch the phantasmagoria, know what it is, and laugh at it. Now, you you state in in your conclusion that um, there's nothing really novel in Russian perceptions that the social body is sick. I mean, if you look across um, uh, Western Europe at the time, the language of degeneration, um, to some extent, I mean, it really kind of covers the period. Um, What then makes the Russians' diagnosis of the turn of the century modern experience unique? What makes it you know, Russian in this sense? What makes it Russian? <laughs> well, one, yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, as I was finishing the book and trying to answer that question to my own mind, because it was one written in every one of the peer reviews and in critiques when I gave talks about it. And in a certain sense, I'm torn on the answer to that question because in part I'm trying to suggest that Russia's not as different as one might expect it to be. To be sure, Russians can be uh, and are happy to, are very comfortable with being emotional about the world around them um, because they tell themselves that that's what it is to be Russian, to be emotional about the world. Um, they also, you know, understand that Russia is not as developed. Uh, and so they're conscious of there is a possibility of modern progress. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I kept finding the, diff- the similarities were much greater, except for one difference that I think is the more important one, not the ones Russians tell about themselves as ultimately uh, being um, different, but that because they're sitting there on the margins and latecomers to modernity, because they can inherit this whole European vocabulary of degeneration and analysis, there's a greater sensitivity 
to the problems uh, that they share with Europeans and Americans and others, and soon the rest of Asia, to experience modernity. So what I think is their, their vision may be more acute because of the timeliness, the late timeliness to which they're coming into this story. They're more aware of, they felt, of something that was shared, as opposed to Russia is different because we suffer the way others don't. Our modernity is more backward and more degenerate. We're darker. I think ultimately it's a more acute awareness of what they share. And ultimately, therefore, it's a story about commonalities. Well, it's a, it's a really vivid and, and, and imaginative book in the sense of the imagery of it is really, really strong. And, and I think that's, a, that's, that's a, the case in all of your work. Um, you do a very good job of, you know, like I said in the opening, just really t- close attention to words and the what. Sync. I, I love how in your text you quote only single words rather than passages of statements, really giving power to how those words, their significance of those words in in the image that you're trying to portray. So, um, I definitely appreciate that aspect. Thanks. I mean, I actually have some hope that even apart from all the larger sort of philosophical and interpretive arguments, that it's also still a pretty good story about uh, from the street-eye view of life in a big city that actually could be read by people who don't care about or aren't really primarily interested in those bigger questions. And that's actually why I love history, because we still live with the richness of human stories, and people can take away all sorts of things from those Certainly, uh, and and it certainly ha- it does have that element of a good of a good a depressing story, but a good story yeah. nonetheless. Um, yeah. So to wrap up the interview, what are you working on now? What am I working on now? Well, I'm um, sort of doing two things. One one is I'm finishing a uh, a book um, on the well. I'm not really finishing. I'm about halfway through, but it's conceptually finished in my mind in many ways. Uh, but that'll always change as I write. A book for Oxford, um, which I wanted to call Experiencing the Russian Revolution, uh, but they say, no, no, just call it The Russian Revolution. It'll sell copies. Uh, but Oxford has this new series called Oxford Histories, which the idea is you take a big world event, World War II, the Holocaust, things like that, and um, write it, as they say, with attitude, but aimed ultimately for undergraduates and partly general readers. And so my attitude, the, as it were, is to is like my other work is to think about the revolution, but I'm defining it from 1905 to 1921, uh, the sort of broader sweep. Although one could never stop those boundaries, but I think that's a key revolutionary moment, not just 1917, through um, people's human experience. Uh, and so the book is structured partly. I tell the conventional narrative, but a, an experiential one, uh, sort of through the eyes of historians and through the eyes of newspapers. But ultimately, the book is divided into chapters that deal with the city, the urban experience of the revolution, uh, the imperi- those people of empire, uh, especially Jews and Muslims, uh, the village, soldiers, uh, and in the end, ultimately, how revolutionaries and futurists envisioned what revolution was supposed to be about. So we'll see how that comes together. But the idea is experience, and particularly as it evolves, as I've been writing, thinking about questions of what does freedom mean is probably the most important because everybody talks about it and everybody disagrees. But also the revolution is a very violent time, like the violence we've been talking about, but also the violence of revolution and especially civil war, uh, something you've also worked on. And again, violence as part, as an idea, but also as uh, experience. Um, 
and ultimately time because it is about revolution will become part of that story. So I'm, but I'm only about really only two or three chapters. Don't tell my publisher. Well, <laughs> well you just, you just outed yourself. <laughs> so, so in any case, but I'm, I'm working on that. Uh, and then I'm actually beginning to conceptualize a, a book for a couple of years away, probably of returning, uh, but returning to the city, which really still interests me. And I'm not, satisfied I've said all there is or thought all I want to think about uh, urban life and I've been thinking about uh, returning to the the questions become very big in contemporary life. Uh, One might argue it's the dominant social problem we're facing apart from environmental degradation uh, and that is the spread or is what one person calls the prevalence of slums in the modern world and so I've begun to think more and more about the slum which also appears in my book both as a metaphor and as a real place uh, but to go quite deeply into the experience of, of slums uh, in Russia, probably in four different cities around the empire over a fairly long period of time. But that's more in the when I'm not working on my teaching or the revolution book or editing the journal, um, thinking about how to conceptualize that. Well, that's, that all sounds great, and, and I, I certainly uh, await it. So, well, thank you very much. It's a great discussion. Thanks, Sean. It was great fun to talk to you. I've been speaking with Mark Steinberg about his book, St. Petersburg Fendisiekel. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And until next time, Того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живем, Надо бы лампочку повесить, денег все не соберем.